This morning we'll have the Hosey ladies reading from God's word for us. Lesson from the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 16, 18-20. You shall appoint judges and officers in all your towns that the Lord your God is giving you, according to your tribes, and they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. You shall not pervert justice, you shall not show partiality, and you shall not accept a bribe. For a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of the righteous. Justice and only justice you shall follow, that you may live and inherit the land of the Lord your God is giving you the will of the Lord. Please stand for the lesson from the Gospels from Luke chapter 18. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterwards he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice, so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Praise oh, the Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Good morning, everyone. All right, let's see. Part one of today's sermon. All right, I have a story that maybe, if some of you have heard it, you've probably heard it from me. And so if you have, don't give it away. Don't give away the answer. But I want all of you, especially the the kids, to think about what you would do if you found yourself in a situation like this. Now, the the parable of the unjust judge, we're going back 2,000 years. I don't want to go back that far. I want to go back only about 1,200 years to the reign of Charlemagne, the great emperor, the first holy Roman emperor crowned by the Pope on Christmas Day in the year 800. And Charlemagne was the king of the Franks. That's where you get the the country France from, the Franks. That was the tribe. And he rose to ascendancy and and started this dynasty. Uh, He is Charles I of France. His son, King Louis the Pious, is Louis I of France. They, They claim this family as the beginning of their monarchy. And Charlemagne, uh, had a couple of biographies written about him, roughly contemporaneous. Here's, here's a book that has two of them. The first was by Einhard, who was someone who lived with Charlemagne and one of, was one of his great advisors, kind of like his, his chief of staff. And the second one, the one that I'm going to tell you a story from, was written by someone called Notker the Stammerer. He was a monk and he stammered. I, I, my, my name is, is not, he was, that was his name, Notker the Stammerer. Uh, maybe not the best name to go down in history for, but he comes down for writing this biography of Charlemagne. And he came after Charlemagne and, and really kind of idolized Charlemagne. And he tells lots of wonderful stories about him, some perhaps 
more closely tethered to actual history than others. But the one I want to tell you about is when Charlemagne, who was starting this new empire, sent an emissary, an envoy, to Constantinople, where what, what is referred to as the king of the Greeks, the emperor, the Roman emperor there, uh, the old empire, uh, had his court. And so this Frankish envoy, sort of signaling the rise of the Franks, this new empire, went there to approach the empire of the east and did all sorts of things. They welcomed him. Oh, this is so great to see you. We're so glad that, that Charlemagne's doing well. Let's have a great big feast. You'll be the guest of honor. Now, there was a law in place in Constantinople. Now, now kids, this is the law. I want you to tell me if you think this is a good law or not, but the law was that if you had a meal in the presence of the king, if there was any meat or fish that was served, you must just eat it as it comes, just start at the top and keep going. And in this meal, this banquet, they had a delicious river fish with lots of spices on top. And the Frankish envoy did not know that law. And he turned the fish over to be able to get at it better, at which point the nobles who were at the feasting table with the king jumped up and said, Your majesty, your majesty, you have been dishonored as none of your predecessors ever has been dishonored. This Frank has turned over his fish. And the king, the emperor, said, Oh, I'm, I'm so sorry you must immediately be put to death. I know you didn't know this law. I'm, it, 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 I'm so sorry. I hope Charlemagne won't mind too much. Ask me anything, and, and I will grant it to you before putting you to death. And so the envoy sat there and thought, and he said, Your Majesty, uh, I, who am about to die, ask you one small petition. And the king said, Anything except do not ask me not to put you to death. I have to, I have to do it. That's the law. And so my question for you, if you were there, what would your last request have been? What would you, Miss Andy, if you were advising this Frankish envoy, and he said, what should I ask as my last request? What advice would you or any of you give him? This gets one, and it can't be not to be put to death. Any ideas? I sometimes tell the story, I, I sometimes get to go across the state and I sometimes will visit schools. And I love to tell this story to elementary and middle school groups. And they, they've come up with some pretty clever ideas. And I'm not hearing anything jumping out, so let me just tell you, in the interest of the Ryan family being able to make their soccer game, what the envoy actually asked for. He said, look, I get it. I have to be put to death. That's the law true I didn't know about it but the law is the law so my, my small and modest request is just this would you have the eyes plucked out of anyone who saw me turn over the fish and the king said well I certainly didn't see it but I have to believe my nobles and the queen, I'll just read you the queen then said uh, 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 let's see if I can find this Yes. The king was amazed at this and swore by Christ that he had seen nothing but had only trusted the word of others. Then the queen began to excuse herself. 
by the beneficent mother of God, the Holy Mary, I noticed nothing. And then the other nobles, in their desire to escape from the danger, swore, one by the keeper of the keys of heaven, another by the apostle of the Gentiles, and all the rest by the virtue of the angels and the companies of the saints, that they were beyond the reach of the stipulation, that they had seen him turn over his fish. And so the clever Frankish envoy was able to both save his life and finish his dinner. What was the just outcome in that circumstance? The law was an unjust law. But it was the law. The way that the Frankish envoy got out of his punishment was unjust. He escaped from a ridiculous crime by causing everyone else to commit perjury by lying and swearing that they had seen nothing. The outcome was just, but the process was unjust. And we'll talk about things like that a little bit more today, but let's begin with prayer. Almighty God, who gave us your only begotten Son to take our nature upon him, and to be born of a virgin, to suffer and die unjustly, so that we might live eternally on his account, grant us that we may appreciate your justice and your mercy and your love, that we may daily be renewed by your Holy Spirit, that our hearts may be transformed by your grace and made into hearts that love justice, love mercy, and love our brothers and our sisters by following your example and by seeking you through ceaseless, unfainting, and unremitting prayer. Through Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. Last night, here in the city of Austin, there was held a red mass. I saw it with my own eyes. For those who are unfamiliar with the term red mass, it's a church service where a key purpose is prayer for wisdom and discernment and guidance for judges and all of those who participate in the administration of justice. And one theory for why it's called a red mass is that historically the, the clothing, the vestments worn by priests and bishops, when they were celebrating the Holy Spirit, they were red. And it's the Holy Spirit that's central to this mission of seeking guidance that the judges and those involved in administering our justice system be given that strength and wisdom by the Holy Spirit as they do something so important as to administer earthly justice. A red mass is always celebrated near the beginning of a judicial term. And here in America, that means September and October. That's why we had ours last night. I was there. Toby was there. Jimmy was there in his capacity as Justice Blacklock. Dozens of judges and lawyers and, and some of their families were there. Justice Barrett of the U.S. Supreme Court was there and gave a beautiful talk at a dinner afterwards. The sermon that was preached at the church service yesterday was one of the parables of Jesus, the parable of the laborers in the vineyard. It's a great and important and challenging parable, but I have always thought that the Bible passage for a red mass is surely the one that we're focusing on today. Why would we not, in a room full of judges, ask for the parable of the unjust judge to be the subject 
of discussion. But apparently that's never been done. I've never found a judge who's been to one, and that was the topic. Maybe out of some degree of diffidence or respect. Even more than the parable of the laborers, the parable of the unjust judge is a hard parable. One of the reasons that you know it's hard is that Luke does not wait for us to hear the story before he tells us what it means. Not very many parables like that. He cracks the code in verse 1, eliminates the suspense. The parable to the disciples we hear is to show them that men ought always to pray and not to faint. That's the original, the beautiful King James Version. In the English Standard Version, it's translated as this, Jesus telling the disciples the parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. And surely we can all agree that we are directed by the Lord to pray and not to faint, to always pray and not to give up. But that raises a few follow-up questions, which I want to explore with you in the the, the, the hour or two that we have together this morning. First, who is this parable really about? Is it the persistent widow or the unjust judge? For some reason, I find myself curious about the judge. So let's start there. And here's a statement that I hope never to hear outside discussing this single passage of the Bible. The statement to make is, This judge is wicked. When you hear someone talk about a judge, probably an image pops into your mind. Maybe someone in a black robe. Maybe somebody with a gavel. Somebody sitting on an elevated bench. Flags behind them. People approaching to talk. What what image would have come into the minds of those when Jesus mentioned a judge? What would they have seen in their minds eye 2,000 years ago? truth is we don't really know all that much. We we know that the judicial process then was very different than it is today. But I think it's fine for us to stick with our 21st century American image of a judge. Jesus, after all, is studiously vague in this parable about the judge. Jesus doesn't tell us what city or what court or what legal system, even whether it was a religious court or a secular court, whether it was Jewish law or foreign law. He doesn't give us any details about the judge's jurisdiction, which makes me think that those details just don't matter. And the level of generality that Jesus does provide offers a lot of similarities between whatever the judge was 2,000 years ago and our judges today. Judges today... And apparently back then, have substantial power over people, and often the most vulnerable people. Judges today, like apparently back then, are human beings who may be tempted by considerations other than justice. Maybe by considerations even that are antagonistic to justice. Judges today, and apparently back then, are not only tempted by baser concerns, but sometimes succumb to those temptations. They rule sometimes, or fail to rule sometimes, because of laziness, or fear, or bias, or greed. We refer to judges as the honorable so-and-so. We call them your honor when we see them. But no judge is honorable just because the judge has a black robe to wear. Your honor... It's more an aspiration than a description. 
It's what we hope and expect our judges to be like and to become. But just like any other human being, calling a judge, calling anyone honorable does not make them honorable. It does not guarantee that they actually are honorable. And sadly, there are more than a handful of judges in this country, in this state, who used to be called your honor and who sat on a bench, who today are sitting in prison. The judge in this parable, in other words, is actually uncomfortably familiar to us. And probably that's true for every culture, every legal system across the planet in all time. That makes it all the more brilliant for Jesus to have spoken in such a way that anyone at any point can instantly pick a different image, maybe not a black robe, maybe not a gavel, but something where they can say, I know what you're talking about. Jesus spoke in a level of generality that can cross the continents and the millennia because injustice at the hands of those with power is a shared human experience. But again, it's not just judges. Any human being who has power to exercise over another human being holds the potential either for good or for evil. And that brings us to the widow. She's familiar too. Let's call her the plaintiff, just for for ease and for convenience. What difference does it make in this parable that the plaintiff was a widow? Throughout the Bible, widows are symbolic of those with no hope, no friends, no resources, those who depend upon mercy and cannot survive without justice. Over and over, God commanded his people to love and pursue justice, and over and over he invoked widows and orphans, strangers, as those who represent the powerless, who are all too easy to dominate, to exploit. Here's what Moses said in Deuteronomy 27:19: Cursed be anyone who perverts the justice due to the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. And all the people shall say, Amen. He made them hear that, to accept that curse and to say, Amen. Isaiah 10, verses 1 through 2 says this, In reviling judges or others in power who act unjustly toward widows. It says, Woe unto them that decree unrighteous decrees, and that write grievousness which they have prescribed, to turn aside the needy from judgment and to take away the right from the poor of my people, that widows may be their prey, and that they may rob the fatherless. And then later in Luke, the, the gospel passage for us, go forward a few chapters, just two, to Luke 20, verses 46 to 47, and Jesus is condemning the injustice of this sort in his own time. Jesus said, Beware of the scribes, which desire to walk in long robes. Oh, long robes. Uh, Love greetings in the markets, and the highest seats in the synagogues. High seats, elevated bench. Ah, they love the chief room at feasts, which devour widows' houses, and for a show make long prayers. The same shall receive greater damnation. And so widows were called out for special protection, a special responsibility for God's people, all of God's people, to practice justice and mercy by treating with dignity and respect those who are the least powerful, 
to resist the temptation to make easy prey of the most vulnerable among us. Being a widow at this time was not a great deal. They did not inherit what their husband's estate included. Provision for their living was supposed to be made, but they didn't get the resources. In fact, they were left typically with the husband's family and reduced to a form of servanthood. Okay, you can stay with our family, our house now, and if you want to, you will be our servant, like Cinderella. Just to survive, they sometimes were sold into slavery, sometimes to pay off their husband's debts. So using widows to symbolize those most likely to be oppressed is an easy thing for Jesus' audience to have understood, and it isn't just a quaint concept from back then either. In our own time, politicians really want to avoid being characterized as harming widows and orphans. It comes back from this ancient thought. And let's link this concept right back to judges. Consider a Texas Supreme Court decision from 1968. I'm just going to read you how the decision begins, the first eight words of the decision, and see if you can tell who won the case just from these first eight words. Here's what the court began the opinion with. The widow Humber brought suit against Claude Morton. Do you think that the court ruled for Morton or the widow Humber? It didn't say a disgruntled customer sued Claude Morton. The widow Humber did, and I think you can probably guess who won the case. So back to our parable. The widow here is just a symbol for someone who is impoverished and alone and helpless, someone who has no hope except for the judge whose job, whose duty is to ensure that right and justice will prevail according to what the law requires. But this judge is lawless and unprincipled. Now let let me pause here for a second. Judges would be unjust if they ruled for widows because they're widows. Judges have to rule based on the law, not their sympathy. We don't pick the party that is the lowest in rule for them, nor the party that is the highest. Judges are supposed to be just by following the law. So that raises this question. What does justice even mean? We talk about that word so often. And what a question it is. What, what is justice? A question that simultaneously is so truly simple and so hauntingly complex. But at least part of what it means to be just is to be impartial and neutral that a decision must honestly respond to the facts that matter and apply the law regardless of the consequences. The facts that matter do not include the judge's own personal like or dislike of the parties involved or what those parties stand for, anything of that nature. Those are immaterial facts. So here's another example from Notker's biography of Charlemagne. During Charlemagne's war against the Saxons, Charlemagne himself would often be on the front lines in camps with all his troops. And here's the story. The sons of two of Charlemagne's nobles, whose duty it was to guard the entrance to the king's tent, lay there dead to the world one night as a result of the drink which they had guzzled. Charlemagne, who according to his custom was unceasingly vigilant, went the rounds of the camp and then quietly returned to his tent without anybody recognizing him. And the story goes on that the next morning, Charlemagne called the the leaders, the nobles of his realm together for a council, and during that council, he said to them, what punishment is fit for those who fail to protect the king 
and leave him open to attack. And Notka reports that the two nobles, whose sons were supposed to be the guards of Charlemagne's tent, and who instead were drunken and dead to the world, that those two nobles, who had no idea of what had happened, eloquently explained that the only proper punishment was death. And Charlemagne instead upbraided the young men, but left them harmless. The point is that a just decision is one in which if the parties were flipped around, if those two nobles had been told that it was their sons who had done that, would they have said that that's the sentence that should be imposed? A just sentence is one in which if the parties were materially the same but on opposite sides, that the judge would have no hesitation in rendering the same decision. When I spent some time in Iraq, there were unjust judges there. And some were unjust for reasons that are like this one, and others it wasn't truly their fault. Because some of those judges, when they would render decisions that were just, they would be attacked. Their families would be killed. Their houses would be firebombed. Which led, of course, to a great temptation to rule out of fear. And a judgment based on fear, like a judgment based on partiality or bias or greed, is an unjust judgment. Which is to say that injustice is not always coming from a place of true wickedness, but it can still be unjust. But if God is the true judge, he is an impartial judge. His exhortation of justice for widows and orphans does not mean that ruling for them when their cause is unjust becomes just. It means not ruling against them or ignoring them merely because they are helpless. It means giving them the same process that we would give to someone who is high and mighty and rich and powerful. And so no one is saying, Jesus is not saying that this judge should have ruled against the widow's adversary just because a widow should always win. That would be unjust, not just. But I think we can reasonably reasonably deem this widow's claim to have been a just one. For one thing, not too many widows in the Bible are portrayed as great oppressors. Instead, they're depicted as being victimized again and again. And even more obviously, this is a parable, not an actual legal case. Jesus only tells us that it's a widow who is seeking justice. And the parable's premise is that the widow is entirely in the right and that her unnamed adversary is in the wrong. And that pattern would have been very familiar, sometimes uncomfortably familiar to those who heard Jesus speaking. That premise, that she was right and her adversary was wrong, tells us something about the judge. He was unjust when he refused to even hear her complaint at all. And he was still unjust when he ruled for her, even though he got the result right like the result for the Frankish envoy, not being put to death for turning over his fish. The unjust judge did not become the just judge when he finally did the right thing. And why is that? It's because he ruled without any particular attention or interest in the merits of the case. He didn't care about the widow at the beginning. He didn't care about the widow at the end. He didn't care about the law at the beginning. He didn't care about the law at the end. 
His ruling was based on his own convenience. It was convenient to ignore her because she's a widow. She can do nothing to me. And then it was convenient to rule for her because she is rather persistent and she is going to wear me out. A self-directed motivation for anything cannot be a just judgment. He ruled for the widow because ruling for the widow became in his interest, not because doing it was right. Now, I think we should pause there for just another moment because it is awfully easy for us to condemn that unjust judge, and he was worthy of condemnation. The unjust judge had no idea if his ruling was right or wrong because he didn't care if it was right or wrong. He just wanted to avoid the hassle. But shouldn't we take out the mirror before we say too much about his compromise to get the hassle behind him? Now, compromises are not inherently bad. Sometimes compromises are inherently good. They're necessary. But if we stop and reflect on all the compromises that we have made in life, when we choose to speak up, when we choose to be silent, when we look on when things happen that ought not to happen, when we rationalize our own conduct or the conduct of others, is it possible that a little bit of the unjust judge is part of the human condition, including ours? The part in which we justify that which is unjustifiable when doing so advances our own comfort or convenience or peace, or quiet, or harmony with our neighbors, or our social standing, or desire for professional advancement. In other words, one way of looking at this parable is that, that we, we Christians, we members of the church, we identify with the widow. We cry out for vindication. When we hear these stories, we figure out which one are we playing, and we want to be the widow in this story. But the other way to look at the parable is that at least sometimes each one of us isn't the widow. We're the unjust judge. And I say all of that because the parable isn't really about the system of justice at all. The core teaching of the parable just uses the legal system to illustrate what Luke tells us at the very beginning. So there's no doubt he lays it out before he tells us the story that men ought always to pray and not to faint, that they should always pray and not give up. And we'll talk briefly about what that might mean. But for now, while we're still focused on the unjust judge, let's go ahead and accept the point that Jesus is making, one that he made in so many other parables too, that even if this wicked, unjust judge will finally answer a widow that he doesn't care about at all, how much more quickly... Will God, our loving Father, hear us and answer us and deliver us? And we can gladly accept that beautiful, wonderful, and true teaching. Now, earlier in Luke, Jesus told us that even an evil man will not give his son a snake when he asks for a fish or a scorpion when he asks for an egg. And I think I've told you before that we all have our favorite snacks, and when I lived as a, as a junior in college in Japan, the little girls in the home that I lived with, they had their favorite snack. They'd come home from school, dressed in their little sailor outfits, collapse on the couch, and beg for a boiled octopus. 
That was the snack that they wanted. So in this country, you might say, well, if you ask for, a, for, for, for an egg and your mother gives you a boiled octopus, she, she might be the bad one, but in Japan, that can actually be the good parent doing it. We all have whatever our favorite snack is. And your mom, your dad wouldn't give you a snake or a scorpion or a boiled octopus in this country, at least if you don't like it, when you want a good snack. And God is good. He's not wicked like we are. So if the widow can get justice from an unjust judge, think how much better it must be for us to turn to God. And it's all true, and thanks be to God that it is. But let me throw one more complication into the mix. And this is a theme that we return to over and over in one way or another, and that is that when God rules for us, when God grants our requests, when God answers our prayers, here's a third way to look at the parable, when God gives us what we want, He is the unjust judge. There is no justice in ruling in our favor in giving us anything. Who among us thinks that when we ask for something from God that he is duty-bound to give it to us because we deserve it? What did did we say in our confession on page, page four of our bulletin? Remember not, Lord Jesus, our offenses, neither reward us according to our sins. That is what would be justice if God remembered our sins and rewarded us according to them. In fact, the worst thing that can happen to us is that we get justice from a just heavenly judge who clearly sees our minds and our merits and gives us what we deserve. Instead, We rely exclusively on the merits of Jesus Christ because it is just for God to accept Jesus' supplications. And it is why it is in Jesus' name that we end our prayers. And that really is the the key point, that we're to be persistent in pursuing God in Jesus' name, not to seek justice for ourselves, but to escape justice, to escape divine, perfect holy justice. Judges on this earthly realm must follow the law and dispense justice as best they can. But only a fool would look to the heavenly throne and ask for justice rather than grace. Only a fool would ask for what we deserve. So we all agree that we should pray without giving up a message the New Testament repeats over and over again as well, both in exhortation and in example. 1 Thessalonians 5.17 so memorably, clearly, concisely puts it, pray without ceasing. But how does that work in this parable's context involving a clearly abused widow begging for simple fairness? What does persistence in prayer really mean or achieve when we're applying it to our heavenly Father and Judge? Well, one possibility is that prayer is magic. That if we say the right prayers the right number of times, use the right words and incantations, then God has no choice but to grant our request. And of course, that isn't the right interpretation. The parable is not saying, look, you can badger the unjust judge enough that he'll give you what you want, so it should be easy to badger God into acting like a genie who comes out of a bottle and grants your every request. Prayer is not magic in that way. The the, the very fact that persistence is required is proof that prayer will not always be answered in a fashion that we might call timely. Instant gratification does not require persistence. 
If instant gratification were on offer, persistence would not be needed. And neither does instant gratification tend to purify. Consider parents, none in this church, of course, who instantly meet their children's every whim. No shortage of such parents in this world these days. Do those children turn out well? Consider teachers who instantly praise a student's first and half-hearted effort. Do those students become good writers or thinkers? Consider organizations or families or nations where some leaders' first impulse is unthinkingly adopted without any deliberation or critical thought. Do they turn out to be well-governed, prosperous, wise? The point is that persistence in prayer is not only or even primarily about getting the initially requested results. It's about how prayer can be an essential part of our path on this planet to becoming the people, the souls, that God wants us to be. Sustained, continuous prayer about specific topics allows us to engage with God and even with ourselves. Are we asking God for the right things, for the right reasons? Are we missing a larger lesson about why the things we are asking for are not appearing? Are we failing to hear God's response because we're so focused on getting what we want as opposed to hearing how God responds as he always does? Sometimes continuing to pray helps us come to understand what actually is best for us in the first place. Sometimes God's delay channeled through a period of prayer leads us to truly appreciate why what we want is in fact the right thing so that when it comes, it is holy and precious beyond what we could have imagined when first we sought it. Sometimes God's delay leads us to realize that we didn't want it or need it in the first place. After all, prayer is not just us talking to God and God listening, it is that, but turning back to the Lord again and again on bended knee helps teach us to hear his voice as well. Persistence in prayer may or may not generate the response we want in the time we want it, but what is guaranteed is that it will achieve this, something far more valuable and more permanent, a more sustained connection with God. So if prayer is one of the ways that we talk to God, persistence in prayer amounts to keeping the conversation going. God isn't a machine where we put in the token, we crank the handle, and out comes the prize. He's our father, not our ATM machine. And verse 1 starts this all off by saying that the point of the parable is to keep on, keep on praying. And the rest of the parable tells us that we will be answered in God's timeliness, His time, not ours, and perhaps not until our final vindication on the day of judgment in which we can claim the vindication that Jesus alone deserves. Wholly missing from this promise is any sterile assurance at all that there will be no discomfort or pain along the way. To the contrary, the very nature of the promise and the parable and the entire gospel of Jesus Christ is that these things are to be expected and... We might say with some trepidation that pain and suffering are to be welcomed. This idea of God's elect being avenged is not the delightful Pollyanna type of thought it might seem like. One avenges 
the victim of a crime, after all. A child avenges the wrongful murder of a heroic parent. Hello, my name is Inigo Montoya. You kill my father, prepare to die. He's seeking vengeance for a serious crime. These final comments in this passage reflect that Jesus is forecasting a need for vindication, for vengeance. A dark time of persecution when the church would cry out in its suffering where the church would need vindication. A church that has every need met does not need to be avenged. And such a time was not far off when Jesus spoke. Throwing Christians to the lion, burning them as candles for the pleasure of an emperor. Those things are true. They happened. Early early Christians were persecuted. And there's no question of the horrifying persecution throughout history across, across this globe, not just of Christians, and sometimes sadly by Christians against others, but merely being Christian has itself been a cross for many to bear. There's a book called Silence, in Japanese it's called Chinmoku, by the, the great uh, uh, Nobel Prize winning author Shusaku Endo, who describes 17th century Japan when Portuguese missionaries came to Nagasaki and converted hundreds of thousands. But Christianity was despised by the leaders as a dangerous, subversive, non-native doctrine. And so the government of Japan developed what were called fumie. Beautiful brass images, beautiful images of Jesus on the cross, of the Virgin Mary. And why did the government, which hated Christianity, develop these beautiful brass images of the chief moments of our faith? It was because the Japanese people in any area where Christianity had taken a toehold were required to stamp on those images repeatedly, year after year, on the theory that those who truly believed would not do it and would thus convict themselves of disloyalty to the regime and thus subject themselves to truly agonizing tortures leading to a slow death. They would have doctors on hand to revive and bring people back to health so that the torture could continue. Fumie literally means eh, means picture. Fumi means stepping on. That's what they were for. They were built for no reason. They were made and cast for no reason other than to be stepped on. And you can see them today, and generally the, the, the beautiful face of Jesus is gone. You'll see his outline, but that's how many feet stepped on that bronze over hundreds of years in order to prove that they were not Christian. There's no question that there's persecution today. Try being an Orthodox Christian in China or Iraq or many other places. And so the widow in today's parable stands at least in part for the Christians who are friendless, powerless, persecuted, marginalized, but ultimately justified by Christ. They seek justice through Christ and they'll get ultimate vindication And something even better than that. Those who are persecuted for his namesake are blessed beyond measure. As we read in Matthew 5, 11 through 12, in the Beatitudes, Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you, and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad. Be merry, as perhaps Sir Thomas More said as he was about to have his head chopped off, we heard about last night. For great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. 
All Christians will be just, justified and vindicated, but those who suffer on account of Jesus will be given a special honor. We know that the ultimate end is sure. And think back to Daniel's messages from James that we have heard these past weeks. Here's James 5, 7 through 9 again. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Patience is what is called for from us, because something better is coming, and it will be something that vindicates the people of God, and that something is Jesus Christ himself coming back for us. But what worries me is the very last part of our passage, the very last clause in verse 8. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Something better is coming, and that's Jesus. But when that something better comes, when Jesus comes, what will he find? This is a note of pessimism about the depth of the church's faith. When Christ comes again, that should concern us. Especially the fact that Christ makes this note of pessimism immediately after a parable about the power and purpose of prayer. Jesus knew that with the passage of time and the coming of troubles, those willing to cling to the gospel will shrink in numbers and in faith. That's what so many parables are about, and that's what verse 8 tells us in this passage too. Many of those Fumier images in Japan eloquently, but disappointingly, tragically illustrate that point. That's why the facial features of Christ are gone. Some Christians couldn't do it, and they were tortured in unspeakable ways. Some Christians would do it, and they would come home after stomping on the fumier, and they would burn the sandals that they wore, beg God for forgiveness, mix the ashes of the burned sandals with water, and drink it in penance. But of course, others just gave up altogether. There were at one point half a million Christians in medieval Japan, and when in the 19th century Japan opened up again, there were 20,000 that emerged from the shadows. The antidote, the antidote to verse 8 is in verse 1, the bookends of our passage. Persistence in prayer isn't about getting our wishes granted. Persistence in prayer is an essential part of creating the strong roots that are necessary to withstand the storms of life that may be brief or one's entire life long. Those who lack those deep roots are unlikely to be the seeds that when they're planted will grow in times of trouble. And I am convinced that those who are undergoing persecution now in far-off places are those most likely to have the sort of relationship with God that we all should crave. One last thing. We know for certain that God, the Almighty, all-powerful King of the universe, is portrayed as the powerful judge in this parable in ways that any human judge could never aspire to be. But is that the only way that God is represented in this parable? We can be, 
identifying with both parts? Can God be identified in the helpless, weak form of the widow? When Christmas Day comes, in just a few more months, it's hard to believe, we will celebrate the birth of the weak, helpless baby Jesus who took on that form of vulnerability to prepare for his ultimate sacrifice to be condemned at the hands of another unjust judge. And that is why Christmas Day is an important day for Christians, but not the most important. Easter always matters more because that's when the most unjust sentence in human history was imposed, when Christ was allowed to suffer and to die despite being the only truly perfect man to walk the earth. The parable of the unjust judge confirms that God did not then and will not now eliminate suffering. If he had eliminated suffering, he would have eliminated the need for his own suffering. He would have eliminated the need for prayer. And if he had eliminated the need for prayer by eliminating suffering, he would have dealt most of us a fatal blow. Because without prayer, without the need for prayer, without the connection that prayer brings us, we cannot develop the true faithfulness for which God has made us and to which he calls us. The worst thing that God could have done for the church was to make the earthly lives of its members utterly serene. Instead, far from eliminating the need for prayer, God urges us here and in so many other places in the Bible to pray without ceasing, to never tire of praying, to never give up. But remember that God's choice was not to remove our suffering, but to suffer along with us by being born in the most humble way possible and to later accept death in the most violent and degrading way that he could. And so we're called by the unjust judge to learn from him, to sympathize with him, to see himself in us, and ultimately to become people who are people of prayer in ways that before we never truly imagined that we could be. Amen.